So, as a Christian, we're told in God's Word that you will unjustly suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will actually be maligned not for telling lies, but telling the truth. You will be hated because you stand for Jesus Christ and His truth. Your job might be threatened or taken away because you are unwilling to desecrate the Lord's day by unnecessary work. You may suffer physical affliction from Satan, as Job did, not because you are living in some unrepentant sin, but because you are living in a godly way and the devil hates to see your love and obedience to God's holy command. You see, before you can wear the crown of glory, you must first take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ. There's humiliation before there's exaltation. The Lord's own example reminds us of the cost of being a disciple of His. And my friends, there's there has to be a form of suffering so that we can understand lest we forget that He suffered Himself for us. He suffered for you and I. And there may not be a better remedy to the pain or exhaustion of suffering than to look in faith and in love at your suffering Savior who endured the injustice, the stripes, the mockery, the cross for the joy that was awaiting Him and purchasing everlasting life for rebellious sinners like you and I. Christ overcame and so shall you who belong to Him. For the dear children of God, by His stripes, you have been healed. The cross of Christ is central to the, to the Christian faith. The cross reveals to us the character of God, His love for lost sinners, His perfect judgment, and His love meet at the cross. If we want to grow in our love for God, which is the first and greatest commandment, we must be growing to understand the appreciation of the cross, which He shows His great love toward us. If we want to grow in godliness, we must grow in understanding the significance of the cross. We must understand that the cross confronts the most prevalent and insidious of all sins, namely pride. The cross is the place where the wounds of sin are healed. And if you suffer the emotional problem of guilt, anxiety, 
depression, anger, whatever it is, it can be healed at the cross of Christ. If you're going through tragedy or suffering, there is comfort in abundance as you contemplate the suffering of the spotless Savior on your behalf. We must remember that Peter wrote these very words to slaves who were suffering unjustly under the cruel masters of the Roman Empire. The words of Christ's wound, the whipping, must be taken in by the hearts of those who were whipped unjustly as well. Peter knew that meditating on the, Christ, on the cross of Christ would produce in them a heart of overflowing gratitude. Gratitude to the one who bore so much on their behalf. You see, keeping Christ on the cross is central. When we lose the Savior, when we forget the centrality of the cross of Christ, and I don't mean keeping him on the cross like the Catholic Church would. He is the risen Savior. He is no longer there. But He was on the cross to suffer for us. If we keep that thought process that will protect us from all this false doctrine that we see in our day, we see so many people forget what the cross of Christ was and Satan hates the cross. He hates it because it sealed his doom. And therefore he's relentless in undermining and thwarting the cross of Christ. And so every cult that comes along, every false teacher that comes along tries to diminish the work of Christ on the cross and magnify human ability. And I believe the doctrine which Satan is currently working on to erode the American Christianity is the doctrine of sin, where churches no longer preach hell and wrath and sin. They preach how you can have your best life now. And as it's been said, if you your best life is now, you're heading to hell. Because our best life is ahead of us. Our best life is in heaven. But you see, if He can convince people that they're not sinners who deserve God's wrath, then you don't need a crucified Savior. All you need is to see this little baby in a manger. And when we see those, those, those pictures and those signs where it says, keep, keep Christ in Christmas, I wish that even though it's the coming of the Savior, that it would be remembered that He came not to live, but to die. He came to live that perfect life and die. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it. The reason we die is because of sin. 
The reason we die is sin was passed from Adam on and on, generation to generation. Christ was born a virgin. That sin wasn't passed on to Him. He didn't need to die. His life was not demanded of Him like it is of ours. He chose to die. He chose to willingly take upon our punishment and our shame. So many times we hear things being said all to make the Christian life comfortable. I heard a prominent pastor on the radio teach that repentance was just merely a change of mind. And literally, that's the definition of the word. But you see, he tried to say it did not include a change of action or behavior. In other words, so long as this person had a correct intellectual definition in their mind regarding who Jesus is, their behavior didn't matter at all and shouldn't be considered a factor regarding whether or not this person is a Christian. This pastor taught that he had received Jesus Christ as his Savior one summer and his Lord the next summer. In other words, repentance defined as turning away from sin to righteousness, was advisable, but not necessary. A person, according to this view, could live like hell and go to heaven, provided they just have a different look upon what they think of Jesus. But that's only one ditch. The other ditch is going the other way and thinking that morality is going to get you there. That just act moral. That's why we don't preach morality. Morality is an outpouring of what has happened in our lives. The change. We are moral because of who we are. Being moral doesn't make us someone. Charles Spurgeon said, Morality will keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Christ to keep you out of hell. I was watching a video where this mother was talking to her 10-year-old daughter. And she asked this daughter, who is not a professing Christian, if doing good would cancel out the bad of sin. And I thought her answer was pretty profound. She said, no. Doing good won't cancel out the bad Doing good, she said, is written in pencil. Doing bad is written in Sharpie. I thought that was very insightful. But you see, if Satan can convince Christians that they're not ongoing sinners in need of daily repentance and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, then they don't need to go into getting deeper into any message. They just need to have that liver quiver as they sing. 
They just need to go, oh, just, Pastor, please tell me as I go out how I can be happy and, and glad and, and try to get away from having any bad things in my life. But you see, biblical repentance is more than just a change of mind. It's an active change of mind about everything that you knew. About who God is. About who Jesus is. How you, who, who you are. How you are to trust Him. How are, you are to obey and follow Him. And like I said, it's true. The biblical definition of repentance begins with our thoughts but it needs to go on to govern our actions as well. To say that you have repented only in your mind, but not in your works or deeds, is really to be double-minded. And James talks about that. And it's actually trying to seek to serve two masters, which Jesus says no, no person can do. And so in our struggles with forgiveness and repentance, so often we, we might go, you know what, I am a changed person, but I'm going to look at all the other people and say, well, you know, what about that person who offended me? They say they've already repented. What about... This person who says that they have been that they have repented unto salvation. We need to continually repent. We repent when we believe, but we daily repent. Sometimes I almost, and I'm putting a huge almost in there. I almost wish that I wasn't a Christian so that when I would repent and I would, I would say, Lord, today I want to repent, I would have that same refreshing, cleansing feeling that I felt the day I believed. And sometimes it's so hard. It's so hard when you're sitting there and you're repenting and you go, Lord, I'm coming to you again today in repentance. Sometimes it seems like it was easier to excuse pre-conversion sins. But you see, repentance and the joy of forgiveness that comes from repentance is not merely... It's not for just the unbeliever who comes to Christ for the first time. It's also for those who have been Christians for years becomes very difficult for any of us to find that same hope that we once had when we were first saved. It's so hard not to be become bitter and retaliate. It's so hard to have an optimistic view of the ministry that God has put before us. I think of so many people like the story I told last week about the two boys that sold themselves into slavery. It's so hard to think about that. 
that we can actually be in a ministry that is so harsh. But we are doing what we're called to do. And that God will see us through. It's so hard when you think of rejoicing. And so we go to Scripture and we see the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. And he writes a letter to the Philippians in prison, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. And Paul ended up saying to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. How do we do this? How can we be content in our struggles, in our hardships? How can we be content while we still struggle with remaining sin. It's only through the death of Christ on the cross, knowing that those who turn to Him are delivered both from the penalty and power of sin. All of our problems stem from sin, either ours or those who sin against us. So I hope that you see the centrality of the cross is crucial in all doctrine. If we're going to be sound, we will hold that as essential. So let's go ahead and turn to our text found this this morning found in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25. First Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his footsteps or his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think we can see that here we find duty and practice woven into sections on doctrine. I hope you can also see that you can find doctrine woven into the sections on duty and practice. I hope you see that it isn't just duty and it isn't just doctrine, but it's a marriage of both. And so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, if we look at verse 21 of our text again, it says, For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving 
us an example that you should follow his steps. And here, this verse starts out by saying, for this. What is the this that Peter is talking about? Well, we can find it in a nutshell in verses 18 and 19 if we look back. It says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. And if you remember that word commendable, it's the Greek word charis, and it means grace. This is the grace of God, the favor of God, shown in our suffering with all fear. The literal translation would be, for this is grace. In other words, when we submit as Peter instructs, do you know what happens? We abide in grace. We come to know God's grace. We live in God's grace. And to this, we were called. Jerry Bridges, in his, the preface of his book, Transforming Grace, he wrote this. When we think of grace, we almost always think of being saved by grace. That is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is so familiar to us. Even Christian literature available on the subject of grace seemed to deal almost exclusively with salvation. But the Bible teaches us that we are not only saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day of our lives. It is this important aspect of grace that seems to be so little understood or practiced by Christians. End quote. And so as we continue with verse 21, it says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Now you and I have been called for a purpose of maintaining a commitment to righteousness and a patient, enduring spirit when suffering. Suffering was a part of Christ's life. And since we have believed on Him, it's part of ours as well. There will be times when you get slammed by this world And when this happens, we need to realize that's all part of the work of God. And when we bear up under this hardship and we quietly and faithfully submit, maintaining our commitment to righteousness, you know what happens? The grace of God is shown in our lives. When we hurt and suffer, it's not fate, it's our calling. The purpose to our trouble, the, there is a purpose. There is some sense to our hurts. What actually happens is we lay up treasure in heaven by the way that we cope with this trouble. Because we see ourselves as sin, uh, sinful people in need of a sinless Savior. 
But when we are called to follow Christ's example, it does not mean that we follow Him to be saved. We are not saved by following Christ's example. We are saved by repenting and believing upon Him. So many churches, so many, come in, let's have an example of Jesus Christ, let's go and feed the 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 hungry and 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 uh, take care of the poor and and be good to this and be good and they think they're saved because they're doing all of that that is not salvation folks that is putting the fruit before the root you are saved by grace through faith alone alone. It is not by your works. When you are saved, the fruit that shows is works. You will do those good works because of who you are. You will not be saved by trying to do that. Are figs found on thistles? That's the question we would go, no, they aren't. Wrong root. Thistles don't produce figs. Neither can your good works produce righteousness. We stand on the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. We follow Christ's example after we are saved We follow His example in times of hardship and suffering. And through this, we are sanctified, which means to be made holy. It's a process that we will go through our entire lives. I always think of if you had a wall that was painted, and all of a sudden you see one little spot that was missed even though the rest of that wall looks perfect, our sin is like that spot. And even though it's just a small little spot compared to the rest, it bothers us that much more. We, it's, it's sort of like taking a whole bunch of flowers in a field and you pick up one flower and you smell it and you go, that's, that's fragrant. But if you were to take all of those flowers and make a concentrate. That concentrate would be overwhelming. Just one drop. That's what remaining sin is. That one drop of our sin is a stench that we cannot get out of our nostrils. And I'll tell you what, I pray that it's a stench to the day we die. Because every sin is sinning against our Savior who gave His very life for us. We, in our suffering, we reflect the grace of God. Peter's addressing the elect 
a royal priesthood of God. He's not addressing the unbeliever. The example of Jesus Christ should promote our coping with suffering as a way to reflect God's grace. That's the main point. The example of Jesus Christ should promote our willingness to be submissive even when suffering and to continue to do what is right in a way that reflects the grace of God. Why should we be willing to be quiet and submissive when there is so much wrong in the world, when so much is done against us? Why should we submit to a government that at at times just seems to mock God? Why should we submit to a boss who is godless and ruthless? Why should we take wrong when we are right? The answer is the cross of Christ. Our salvation is written in a sharpie. Our remaining sin is written in pencil. He is written forgiven with his blood. The motivation we have for proper conduct and attitude when we are hurting is Jesus Christ. And so Peter gives a description of some of the suffering aspects of Jesus' life. He paints a picture of an example that we are to follow. And you know what word he uses as an example? Is the, the word hupogramos. It's only used here in all of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. It's only used here. Do you know what it means? The word refers to tracing something that is written. should give you a clue. It's where we get our word grammar from. I was in someone's office just recently, and the daughter sent this lady, her mother, a card written by the granddaughter. She had put, Happy birthday, Grandma, with a highlighter. And you could see this little child traced the letters that were written out by highlighter. And that's really how you learn how to write, isn't it? You trace what's there. You learn to form letters. And by using this, uh, this illustration, it basically is to put one piece of paper over another and trace what is seen through the other piece. Peter is saying when you're hurting and you're suffering, I want you to trace the life of Christ. In other words, the life of Christ when you're hurting and suffering is not just to be admired. It's to be traced. 
It's to get the letters to where it makes sense. The scribbling of a child doesn't make sense, but when they start to form the letters of a word, they can start to make sense of it. That's what happens when we trace the example of Christ in our lives. And I think I want to really point out something here that hit me, and I hope it it does you as well, that the older, more reliable Greek manuscripts say that Christ suffered for you. The word us is not used. It's the difference between the pronouns you and us in the Greek is just one letter. The the word you is haman, and the word us is hemon. And it doesn't seem to be a, a really big issue, and, and using either word doesn't change the theology, but I'm really convinced that using the original pronoun you makes it even more personal. Peter wants every one of us to think in terms that Christ suffered for you. In fact, the preposition for means that Christ suffered in your place, in your stead, as your substitute. The picture Peter paints here of Christ's suffering life is personal. It's lofty. It's not so much focused on the actual dynamics of the physical aspect of suffering as it is the theological aspect of it. When we are suffering for being a believer, Peter wants us to rivet our attention to the cross of Christ, realizing that He went to the cross for you. And so continuing with verses 22 and 23, It says, who committed no sin, nor deceit was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, as I'm looking at this, I sort of see five Christological suffering examples that Peter gives us here. The first thing that we see is that he committed no sin. That means Jesus never committed sin. He always conducted a perfectly holy life. The aorist tense of this verb committed sin, no sin, indicates that there was never ever a moment in time when he committed any act of sin. When we see the commandment, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You never, ever do that. You you might have glimpses where you do it, but you never do it perfectly. There's not a millisecond where you don't just get off track a little bit. Put it into perspective. Jesus Christ never for one millisecond didn't do that. He always loved the Lord his God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He never did anything wrong. Never had a wrong thought. 
He never had a wrong motive. He never once violated the law of God. His character was completely and totally unblemished. There was never one time in his life when he suffered because he deserved to suffer. That can't be said of us. There are a lot of times we suffer because we we deserve it. The second thing that we see when Jesus suffered, he didn't do anything deceitful. The, The word deceit there in the Greek is the word dalos. And it refers to being verbally crafty and deceitful. It's to try to bait someone or set a snare for someone. The idea behind the word is to bait or trap. Now, Jesus, being God, knows everything about everyone. He definitely could have used something to trap someone. But never one time did he do it. And the reason that Peter brings this up is there are times when we suffer because of our mouths. We say something stupid, we say something deceitful, and we get in trouble for it. Christ never did. His speech was perfect. He didn't lie because he never sinned. We die because we sin. He died because we sin. His death was the only way that we can have a relationship with God. And so the point here is if Christ, who never did anything wrong, or or in word or deed, is willing to put up with the suffering, then we who have done plenty wrong in our lifetime ought to put up with the suffering as his as him being our example. The one thing this proves is that Jesus is always pleasing to God. Always. And even though he was pleasing to God, he still suffered. One thing I want to really point out. Just because you suffer doesn't mean that you're out of the will of God. Neither does it mean that you're not pleasing God. In fact, suffering and hardship can be a means by which we demonstrate the supernatural grace of God. There is such heretical and shallow concept of Christianity where so many people say that Christians shouldn't suffer. You have the name it and claim it prosperity preachers who are out there saying, that's all of Satan. It's all of Satan. It is not. If you look in the book of Job, it says that Satan was going to and fro around the earth. And do you know what God said to him? Have you considered my servant Job? We have to get it out of our heads that our faith is ours. Our faith is a gift. It is His faith He has given us. And when He says, have you considered this believer or this believer or this believer, God will give you the grace and faith to deal with it. Which proves what? 
It's not of us. I can't do it, but he can. It's not everything I have in me. It's everything he has in him. That's how we get through. But, you know, when you look at this, we need to understand that we don't suffer just for the sake of suffering. We suffer when it is doing the will of God. And when we suffer for doing the will of God, then we're following the suffering example of our Savior. The third way that Christ suffered is he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, meaning he didn't retaliate. Jesus was and is God, with full authority as God. He could have dropped people dead like flies. Anyone who did him wrong, he could have executed legitimately and righteously. But you see, when Jesus was reviled, to the point where he suffered for it, he didn't retaliate. The word for revile is the word anti-loidoreo. And it means abused verbally. Think of some of the lies that were told about Jesus. Think of how he was called satanic. How he was called being possessed with a devil, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a blasphemer, a perverter of the nations, a deceiver of people. But you see, not one time did he ever retaliate or unleash a barrage of hate and vengeful words. Whenever he spoke severely, do you know what it was? Is to bring people under conviction, not to settle a score. In verse 23, it says he did not threaten. Most people, when they're wronged, they do threaten. What's the first thing? Oh, I'll see you in court. I've got my rights, and you've messed with them, and now you're going to pay. Jesus never acted like that. Never. Think about some of the things that happened to Jesus. His beard was ripped out by the roots. He was hit in the face. He was spit on. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was forced to carry his own cross. And then he had iron nails pounded into his hands and feet. In all this, he uttered no threats. He never opened his his mouth. He never said, I'll have my revenge on all of you. When I come back in three days, I'll take care of you all. He never did that, but he had the right to do it. He had the right to. And sometimes as, as sinners, we end up really not holding up to that. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. He couldn't resist when tempted verbally. 
If you'd please turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23 and verses 2 and 3. Let's start with verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived, lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do not, uh, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? You see, even the apostle Paul, he couldn't perfectly do this. Jesus could. Jesus didn't utter any threats. Matter of fact, do you know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so when we're going through difficulties because of our faith, and you're, you are verbally abused, I pray that you refuse to verbally lash out. I pray that you would quietly submit. Because when you are, you're developing a, a spiritual level that's far above the norm. The fourth example of Christ's suffering was that he committed himself to him who judges right, righteously. He knew his father, the righteous judge. He knew he, that he would settle the score. He didn't have to. He could ha have handled all matters because he himself was the son of God and God himself. But he left it up to God the Father. The word committed is the Greek word paradidomai. And it means that Jesus continually handed over the matter to God. The action is a continual action. What does this mean? It means that instead of Jesus retaliating himself because of all the unjust things that happened, he turned everything over to God the Father, leaving vindication to God. When Jesus was being verbally abused and physically abused, he kept quiet and kept entrusting himself to God the Father. And when you find that you are suffering and hurting and you have done nothing wrong, keep faithful and turn the matter over to God knowing that He is a righteous judge. If you'd please turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse, uh, starting with verse 17. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no evil. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 
If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we continue with verses 24 and 25 of our text, we read, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fifth example of Christ in suffering, I touched on already. It was for you. Jesus went through this terrible suffering because of us. And therefore, we should be willing to put up with some of the suffering for him. Peter sets his mind on the cross and the theology of substitutionary cross work of Jesus Christ. Many of the things that he says, he draws from the imagery of Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't die some sort of martyr. He died as a Savior, as our substitute on the cross. The odd thing about it is that Jews... It was prophesied that he would die on a cross and that his own people would turn upon him. But the Jews, they didn't crucify people on crosses. They stoned them. And if they were really evil, they would hang them on a tree and leave them there until evening as a a mark of shame. Jesus was hung on a cross. All our sin was put on Him. He hung on that cross for all of our violations. For Him, it was a terrible physical hanging on this tree. 
But for us who believe, it's a wonderful reality of total spiritual healing. You see, our relationship with God was fractured. We have two problems. We have a sin problem and we have a righteousness problem, a lack of righteousness. But on the cross, Christ took care of both of them. By his wounds, he healed our relationship with God. And that's not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing. Actually, it was interesting. One of the 4th century theologians made a powerful observation when he looked at the cross of Christ. He wrote, A new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost, and the sick received the healing. A new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost, and the sick received the healing. We see Jesus sacrificially giving his life in place of the very ones who crucified him. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered in our place. He allowed himself to be crucified in the most awful and barbarous way, knowing all the while that we would wander off like lost, sinful, foolish sheep. Yet he died for us. Jesus died and his death accomplished for us personally the ability to follow in his steps. He gave us an example of his dying to sin, to deceit, to wanting to get even, so he could free us from continually strain like sheep. He died to forgive us of our sins, to free us from the guilt and condemnation. He died to teach us submission to authority, first to him and then those over us. He died to break the power of sin in our stubborn lives. Christ's resurrection gave us the power to be alive to his righteousness and to live in his righteousness. When we suffer unjustly, we show the precious value and honor of belonging to Jesus Christ to whom God reserves his superior preciousness. When we suffer patiently, we show the world the excellencies of God's superior shepherd care for us as he's the guardian of our lives and the guardian of our souls. When we don't fight back, we surrender to the glory that someday will be revealed to us when God settles all the accounts. When we entrust our lives to God's care, we entrust ourselves not to the world to make things right, but to his faithfulness and trustworthiness, to his dominion, to his sovereignty, and to his grace. The Bible calls us to get in step with Jesus, to die to sin and deceit, and to live righteously. We need to turn to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. I want to finish with an old story about a drawbridge engineer and his son. 
and this was back before the modern technology of computers made this job obsolete. You see, there was this man who operated a drawbridge that spanned the Mississippi River. He used a control panel of levers and switches to set in motion these huge gears that would either lift the bridge so that boats and ships could pass under or lower the bridge that would allow trains to cross the river. Now, this engineer had a set schedule that he followed day in and day out. But one day, he took his little son to work. And the son was just amazed. He admired all the switches and gears, and he beamed with pride that his father did this kind of work. But you can imagine, after a couple hours, the boy grew bored, and so the father sent him out to play. A short while later, the bridge operator operator realized it was almost time to lower the bridge because it was 5 p.m., and the commuter train would be coming through. But as he was about to pull the switches and lower the bridge, he glanced out the window and he saw his son was, had been climbing on the gears and his foot was wedged. The little boy was wedged between huge gears, trapped and unable to free himself. The engineer was about to run down to help his son when he heard in the distance the train whistle. Suddenly he realized he didn't have enough time to free his own son and return to the control box and lower the bridge in time for the passengers to safely cross. But if he lowered the switch, his little boy would be crushed in the mass of turning gears. He was forced to make a horrible decision. Either his son would be killed or the whole trainload of passengers would plunge to their deaths. The operator knew what he had to do. So he reached for the lever and pulled it. And in doing so, sacrificed the life of his son so that the people of the train could live. And as he was agonizing over his son's death, he saw the train passing. People were laughing. They were enjoying themselves reading the paper, totally oblivious to the sacrifice that the operator made, not understanding what just happened. I wonder if we are like that. We go through life oblivious to the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. There's so many in this world and in this country and even within the church who are oblivious to the sacrifice that our Savior made. Jesus knew as He died that His people would be just as clueless and absent-minded as strange sheep. Oblivious and uncaring. Unaware of what he had done. 
I just pray that we would live as examples and live to his example. That we would remember the cross. That we would understand that there are people that are perishing that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on their behalf. I pray that we would do that. And I pray that this little little church in this little podunk town will be used mightily by God in doing so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great reminder of who Christ is. We praise you. We praise you that he is our standard, our example. The example by which we accept patiently unjust suffering and pattern our response after him. Taking it and entrusting the equality and the righteousness into the hands of our Heavenly Father. Thank you that we see him as our sin-bearing substitute, the one who paid the penalty for our sins, who died in our place. Thank you that we have seen him as the suffering shepherd who gives his life for his sheep in order that he might rescue them and gather them into his fold. Lord, we know it's all about Christ. Everything else is counted as lost. But in him, all is gain. We thank you and praise you for him having control of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.